Good morning, and greetings this morning in the name of Jesus. It's been an interesting morning. Think about all the good truths we've heard. And again, like we say sometimes, it's interesting how the Holy Spirit brings every thoughts together, and it seems like there's going to be a theme this morning from Brother Rigo's devotional to our Sunday school lesson, and then now what we want to look at this morning in relation to the message. I'd like to open with a couple questions, two questions, just to get our minds going. And this you will immediately see is similar to our discussion of Sunday school lesson in a little different way. First question is, where would you go in the world to find God's kingdom on earth? Where would you go in the world to find God's kingdom on earth? Right with that, second question would be, where would you take someone to show them where God lives or where God dwells? It's interesting what the scripture has to say about this. Now, we we often teach a little child about God. We teach them where God is. It's interesting to ask a little child. They can hardly even talk yet. Where is God? And they point up. It's very simple for a child to understand that. Us adults have a harder time. The little child can just accept that that's... And while that is true, and I think it's important to teach children that, for us as adults, I think we often stumble over this question of where does God dwell on earth? We know his temple is in heaven, and in the end, we have that in Revelation 21, 22, you know, God will come down and dwell with man. We looked at that the other morning, uh, Christmas Eve, on the subject of Emmanuel. <coughs> but where, where, is God, where does God dwell today on earth? The title of the message this morning is The Church as a Family. You know, a few weeks, months back, we looked at a few aspects of the church and I would like to think of this one this morning, the church as a family. Turn with me to Ephesians 2, a very familiar scripture. Ephesians 2 and verse 19, down to verse 22. We're going to use this as a basis for our discussion, what it means in relation to the church as, as a family. Ephesians 2 and verse 19 we could probably say this by memory. Now therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together, groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this scripture again this morning. We pray that you would give us Holy Spirit anointing in our hearts to say your truth and to hear your truth. And may your Holy Spirit be present in each of our hearts as we look at these truths together. We ask in the name of Christ. Amen. Paul addresses the church here at Ephesus by describing them as the household of God. Notice that in verse 19. But fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. That's another way of saying the family of God, the household of God. Now, it is also interesting then in verse 22 
And again, this is a familiar scripture. But in whom ye, ye also, in other words, the people of God, ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. And, and so what he is saying there is that it is the Holy Spirit that brings us together as a group or as a church family. And the reason the Holy Spirit does this is because it is we are built together for a habitation of God or it is where God dwells on earth. Isn't that interesting? In other words, if you look at this scripture then, it would say, where do you go to fight to see where God lives on earth? Where is his temple on earth? Right here. Sometimes we say that we come to a service, and I've heard it said, not so much in our setting here, I don't hear it here very often. Can't even remember when I would have heard it last. But anyway, I hear it in some places. They say, well, we're coming to the house of God to worship. No, we are the house of God. This is just an old rickety building. And I know why people say it. It's just, it's probably just a metaphor. But I always cringe a little bit because like, no, it's the people that are the habitation of God. And that's why we don't have to have a special building. I mean, we have a building that we use for this. But we want a simple building. We, we don't want extravagance. We don't need stained glass windows. We don't, back to the Sunday school lesson, we don't need a really a special place. You know, where the people of God come together to meet, that's the habitation of God. And not only when we come to meet, but during the week as we're out about our business and serving the Lord, wherever we are called to serve the Lord, during the week, it is still the habitation of God. And so God is working through His Holy Spirit to bring us together and build us together, join us together, because that's where he wants to dwell. And that's where we can take people, we should be able to take people to see the glory of God. Now, I know this is going to sound this morning, and maybe I'll just give this disclaimer. It's going to sound probably to us as idealistic. And I'm sorry I don't mean it to be that way in the sense that it's something that's unattainable. I would like to give this message more from the standpoint of what I believe the scriptures point out to us and where we can change and do better and do different. Now, just think of the presence and the glory of God. You think of his habitation in his people, jointly, collectively. We know that God fellowship directly with Adam and Eve there in the Garden of Eden. We look at that different times. We're familiar with that. Israel had the tabernacle and later the temple where, where the glory of God, God himself descended there between the, the cherubs on the ark and uh, descended to be with his people. And the ark, or sorry, the, um, well the ark, but the tabernacle was always set up in the middle of the camp. And he had three tribes on the east, on the west, the north, and the south. They were always scattered around, camped around. The tabernacle was always central in their travel through the wilderness on the way to the land of Canaan. Later the temple was built, of course, on the Temple Mount in the midst of Jerusalem. And there you have the glory of God descending, God coming down. And so his, you can just see the, 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 desire, the, the desire of God always was to be among his people. And again, going back to the whole idea of the birth of Christ and Emmanuel, but, and so now in the church age, we don't have a temple, we don't have a tabernacle, and that's why I began with those questions, where is Christ today, or where is God, where is the glory of God, where does he reside? It says, among his people, in his church. And then, of course, we have the future age, or the future time, where we have the, the temple of God, um, as is the, the church coming down and God dwelling among his people forever in eternity future. So, so we see that. But now in the church age, we as children of God in brotherhood are to be the temple of God on earth. And this is where his glory will be seen. 
This is where someone can go to find Jesus. It behooves us, and that's where I think, the, the, to me, the burden of this message is, how can we be the habitation of God on earth? How can we do this? And what happens when it's not working? I'm glad that you know all here this morning. I, I feel blessed to be among you as brothers and sisters who I believe are sincere in wanting to be that habitation of God. And yet I believe that there's more things that we can do. I know I can do in relation to this. We live in a very highly individualistic society and culture. So much so that we can't even fully understand it. It's embedded in our thinking. I know we, can, we try to understand it, and that truth and the fact of it being so independent, so individualistic, so humanistic. But it's, it's where we live, it's what we grew up with, and it's hard for us to imagine. You know, you go to another country, another culture, and you realize, yes, human nature is somewhat predictable and the same all over, but at the same time, there's differences. And we, we cannot help where we were born, but I think by the grace of God, we need to help each other to understand what is happening to us and what has happened to us in living in such a, such a highly individualistic society. And the sad to say that some of this has become too normal, I think, for many people that profess Christianity and, and a part of a church. Now, <clears throat> and I believe that this is one of the main reasons that we see so many struggles in churches today. That's the simple conclusion I've come to in thinking about this over the last weeks. If you try to pinpoint it down, like what is going on, especially here in North America, with churches and divisions and just like, and I know, you know, many of us have, you know, have had, you know, experiences with some of that. And, and to look at ourselves and say, what is the answer? All of us have struggled with this question. And I think it comes back largely to this, this facet, this part of what we have been affected by the culture in which we've lived and we've allowed that to affect our thinking in church life. Churches, many churches, try to have close brotherhood and love each other but it's a real battle to hold things together many times and then people become disillusioned and many are still searching for what seems to be missing. Too many times I think we've tried to have it both ways. We're trying to have close brotherhood and all those things and many, I don't talk, I'd say that in the general sense, not just us here, many sincere people. Try to have it both ways, you know, to have close brotherhood, and yet we still have a tendency at times, at least I do, to hang on to my individuality and my, a certain level of independence. Now, the New Testament concept of the church as a family is it's one of the metaphors used to help us to understand, you know, what God is teaching us. We're not going to go into this deeply. We understand this from the scriptures. You know, and so the first question is, again, why are we family? How can we use this metaphor to understand what Christ wants for us in the church? Well, it's simply, you know, God is our Father in salvation. Christ is our elder brother and also our kinsman redeemer. We could go into all of that, but we won't for this morning. And we have in redemption, we are adopted into the family of God. And God calls us his children, which makes us his father. And because we are children of our Heavenly Father, then all those in Christ with us are our brothers and our sisters. And, you know, we, we use the term brother. Why do we do that? Well, because we are brothers. You know, we don't always behave ourselves like we should, maybe. But that is true. It's what we are, right? We're brothers. We're your sisters in Christ. And so all of that is, is the, the metaphor runs deep in the Scriptures. And we could turn to lots of Scriptures to show that. Jesus even talking to his disciples. He said, you know, my little children. You know, and, you know, and, he, and he expressed that whole concept of the fatherhood of God and, and his relationship to them. And, 
Yeah, it, it, there's, there's so many scriptures that point that out. So if we are, but we, if we are not in God's family by redemption and baptism, then we are outside of God's family and considered dead. Like Paul says in Ephesians 2, dead in trespasses and sins. So to be in Christ, to be saved, is to be in the family of God. Yes, universal, but then also in the local setting. And so wherever people find Christ, and I, I it just, pardon me for bringing up Bangladesh again, but I just see it there again so clearly. People find Christ and immediately they find other believers. And these little group of believers coming together. And it's happening all over the world. But we see it, you know, I see it firsthand in Bangladesh there. You know, because, and they find each other and then they, they worship together and then they, and now they've written out their statement of faith and now they have established a membership. And it's just repeated over and over again. It's, it's, it's just you know, God working in the lives of people and the Holy Spirit brings people together. The Holy Spirit is building us together for a habitation of God. And so there's the universal worldwide family of God made up of many different family branches, we could say, the world over. Then on the local level, there is a family that relates together in close relationship. I think if we're willing as a congregation to be honest with ourselves and, and each other and some of these things that we're going to be talking about, we can root out the individualism and the independence that is a constant threat to the family spirit. Last month I heard this statement made in a message in another distant congregation that it was a message regarding current church life kind of an overview again of the struggles of churches in North America and this statement stayed in my mind I still am thinking about it and I want you to think about it too the statement was this while men are looking for better methods God is looking for better men While men are looking for better methods, God is looking for better men. I guess it kind of hit me square. That's probably why I haven't been able to forget this. There's a tendency at times to think, well, there has to be a better way to do this. This doesn't seem to be working out at times. And we say, well, like, what is, isn't there a better way? but when God is looking for better men. The New Testament makes it very clear there's going to be differences of administration. So it may not be that we have to find the exact church, the exact method, as much as we need to look at ourselves and say, what do we need to be? And then the methods can vary. From church family to church family, and there's different ways of going about it. But when we've dealt with this, our own hearts in it, what God is looking for, then the methods will not seem so terribly important. I'm not saying they're not important. I'm not saying it's not time to look at methods and change methods. But let's, let's think this through in relation to our own hearts. Now, how do we build up our family? How do we build up our family? Talking about church family. I think we need to just start with the basics. And yet the most profound, and that is that the whole premise of our relationship in the church family will be genuine agape love. The love of God. And we, we say, oh, you know, talking about love again. I mean, yes, we know that. It's all, it's, you know, it's love. But what about the outworking of it? That's, I guess, what's been a challenge to me. We say, well, you know, this is simple. Yes, it is simple. But it's what we trip over so many times, I think, at least I do in my relationships. Remember that this tie, this relationship that God is expecting 
by with the Holy Spirit work in our lives, this agape love, this this it's not just a family relation love, it's a divine love, the love of Christ within us that comes out in our relationship with others, that this is a closer relationship than biological ties in family. And that's why you don't have to have family, biological family in a church to be connected, to be to be to uh, to be included. It goes far beyond that. Jesus and the apostles made that very clear. That it is the work of the Holy Spirit within the hearts of people that bring them together. We're glad when there can be relationships in the church, you know, biological relationships, but it's not necessary. And the reason is because of the Holy Spirit is way more powerful of a force within us than biological ties. Biological ties can be broken in the sense of, of uh, not really knowing and relating properly, and a lot of, you know, families have, you know, families that bicker and fight and all kinds of things. You can't say they're very close. But this is a divine relationship through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. And so it's a closer relationship than biological ties. Now, this is also so simple. But I think if we're honest and, and make it practical, it will require some adjustment on our part. At least it, this is the conclusion I came to about myself. Let's look at the practical side of this. Uh, let's go to Galatians first. Galatians 5. What are some practical ways that we can build our family? Galatians 5.13 For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. We're going to talk more about the liberty part probably a little bit later. But look, first of all, this last part, but by love, serve one another. This definition of love that we're talking about, which should be said, is the premise or the foundation for relationships in the church. This simply means that this love, this agape love, this divine love, will have a servant mentality. You say, well, that sounds simple. Yes, we, we understand that. But think of it this way. Our Western culture says, repeats to us many, many times, you really need to look after yourself. You've heard it said, nobody else is going to look after you. You have to figure it out yourself. You're going to have to look after yourself. That's the trademark of the independent fallen culture that we live in. You know what Jesus says? Jesus says, you need to look after each other. In fact, he makes it stronger than that. 1 John 3.16 says this, Hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us. In other words, we know how much Jesus loved us because he died for us. He laid down his life for us. That's how we know how much he loves us. Okay, we can understand that. That's a comparison there. But then he says, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. And you with me, read over that and say, yes. You know, if it would really come to that, I'd want to lay my head on the chopping block for my brothers. Like some of our forefathers the marchers did and we I think we miss one of the basic meanings of, the, of this verse yes it does mean physically and maybe we will never be called here in North America to actually actually lay down our lives for our brothers physically go to death for them to protect them to let them off maybe that would not happen 
But that's not really what the only thing that is in focus. And this one was challenging to me, and this was, you know, it's a lot more than that. It's, you know, to lay down my life really is, is you know, it's emotionally, it is materially, it is socially, it's all the things that are wrapped up in who we are in our existence and our relationship with each other. That's what it means, I believe, in the fullest sense of laying down our life for our brethren. And you see, this runs total counter to what our culture has infiltrated into our minds and given us to understand. I'm not saying we don't help each other. I think our congregation does, does good. But I just think that for myself, I know there's just a lot of room for improvement. And I just don't think we've gotten to the bottom of this yet, of what this is going to mean. Because it means that we will put our church family first. You know, Jesus, you know, Jesus said, you know, if I lay down my life, you need to lay down your life. That means I'm going to put my love for Christ ahead of my love for myself. Which means my own ideas, my own plans, my own, oh, whatever it is. I'm going to lay it down for the good of my brothers and my sisters. But Arrigo read there, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. It's really the same thought, that the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God comes first. And so the question that we can raise this morning is, in this, in relation to our love for Christ, you know, sitting here and looking at your life, not looking at each other, but just looking at ourselves, and just say, is... Do I put my brethren first? Do I put the congregation first? And if I don't, why not? We are called to to serve each other. That's one of the fundamental principles of Christianity as it relates to brotherhood, that you and I are in Christ together and we, our primary purpose in that is to serve each other. To serve each other. And I just don't think, I have gotten to the bottom of what all that means and I, don't, I doubt you have either. It means, according to the scriptures, that I will sacrifice anything even to my lifeblood for your good. Philippians 2, 3, and 4, let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man in his own things, but every man also in the things of others. Don't just look after yourself, but you look after the good of others too. That's important. And so we, like Jesus here, in the church family, are called to serve each other. And of course, the scripture also say, first our brothers and sisters in the Lord, and then wherever there's an opportunity. Like Galatians 6.10 says, you know, as we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially to them who are of the household of faith. It starts here, and then goes out to others. Jesus said, I didn't come to be ministered to, paraphrase, but I didn't come to have people help me minister to me, look after my needs. I came to minister to the needs of others. And that has to be the legacy of our lives. That's, you could say, the epitaph of what we need to be as a Christian. And so we like Jesus here are called to serve each other. Now, this principle will affect every aspect of church life when you think about this. It will affect how willing we give our time, our money. If you, start, if you with me start thinking about, you know, the way we spend our money, how we spend our money, how we spend our time, how sacrificial we are with our possessions, our, our money, 
how sacrificial we are with our time, if we actually believe that the good of my brothers and sisters come before, yes, we're going to supply for our own needs. We understand that. But our needs don't take everything of our time or our finances usually. What, what kind of sacrifice do I, am I giving? That's the question. It will affect how willing I am to do the assignments the brethren asked me to do. Have you ever felt a little overwhelmed? And I know sometimes we have to say no. I recently, it was a hard decision, but said no to going to Bangladesh in March for the discipleship conference. I, I just felt that I, there was too many things that my primary responsibility is here. And so I know there is, I'm not saying there's never a time you say no to things, but now just leave off the extra outside, you know, this, these four walls. So when somebody comes and says, would you have devotions, or would you take Sunday school, or how do we look at that? Are we going to do it out of love for our brothers and sisters and say, wow, there's other people who can do it better? Well, it might be. Beside the point. We're asking you to do it. Um, do we see it as, yeah, humbly, but see it as a privilege to serve my brothers and sisters? Not to be the one to be able to stand up front here and tell everybody what to do, but it's more from the standpoint, I'm going to be an encourager. I'm going to, I'm going to you know, show Christ from the scriptures. I'm going to put myself into this. I'm just saying it's a practical thing to think about. It should be part of our servant mentality, serving each other. It will also affect my willingness to do the many unnoticed things that just simply can be done and need to be done. Some of you, many of you maybe know, a dear brother who's gone quite a few years already to his reward. In our congregation there in Vanderbilt, Brother John. He's bricked. A man in his humble way he told me multiple times over the years he said Jerry I'm not very good at devotions and he struggled up front he said there's not a lot I can probably do in a lot, in a lot of ways he had struggled with poor health for years but he said, you know, I just want to be in the background and I'll just do what I can. When that brother was incapacitated, no longer able to do things, there was so many things that came out of the woodwork that suddenly were not being done. We couldn't believe it. And I know God has a reward for that, that man. It'll be a reward that is equivalent to like those who are maybe up front and do a lot of things in a public way. Maybe preach the gospel, but that man was in the background just doing what he could. We had a young family. We just talked about it the other day. We had a young family and in the ministry and kind of poor. We were struggling financially and he came one time and he told me, he said, I and I forget the exact length of time he did this, but I think it was a month or two or more, maybe even. He said, I just want to, he said, I'm able to do this for you. He said, I'm going to come and pick up your children for you in the morning and take them to school. He said, so your wife, you know, doesn't have to go out and do that. And I forget how many weeks he did that. That's remembered to this day. He just quietly, he didn't want any praise, just, just quietly do it. He would take care of the bathroom tissue, the paper towels, the all the little fix-it things around the building and school. And anyway, it just reminded me when thinking about that in this message. He was a servant of the church, a servant of the church. But it will affect how obligated we feel towards our church family in various ways. 
membership, being in the body of Christ, will bring a certain level of obligation. In other words, if I really love my brothers and sisters in the Lord, in church family, it is going to affect how easy I miss, I miss church activities and services. And I know there's times we miss. I, I understand that. Things we can't control and all that. But stop to think about it. And we know that scripture well from Hebrews, you know, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another. And, and, you know, and you know, so much the more as you see the day approaching. And that in the end times, as we are living in today, it's going to be even more important that we don't allow gaps. And we, need to, we need to be together. And this love in Christ and our love for God and our brothers and sisters, you know how it would be, you know, in a, let me just say it this way, in a family life, you know, you know, in the teenage years or adolescent years, if, you know, the family gets together at the supper table and, Oh, this one's missing, and oh, no one knows where, where, where they are. And I said, well, they're gone tonight, or um, no one heard anything, they're missing. We'd say, well, after a while, you conclude that's kind of a dysfunctional family. Nobody's communicating, nobody knows where everybody is. And I thought about that in relation to church activity. And <clears throat> We will come back to that a little bit later. But I do think it's something that we ought to think about. Or how easily I miss or stay back from communion. There's another one. We need to think about that in relation to love and brotherhood. My loyalty to my church family. Which will also include how I talk about them. You know, and you know, whether gossip is easy or, or not. Um, and it may not be even within a certain group, you know, but what about outside? To other people about faults or weaknesses or whatever struggles we have within the family. You know how it feels with one of your family members, I'm talking about biologically now, or I mean, you know, a regular family, family life, if your brother or your sister would go out and you hear them saying something behind your back to somebody else about your family, it kind of make you feel a little betrayed, wouldn't it? Same thing in church life. You feel, you feel betrayed. Galatians says, let, let no corrupt communication, no, I'm sorry, it's Ephesians. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. So corrupt communication is that which is corrupting, it's corrosive. You say things that are corrosive to relationships. The apostle says, don't do it. But that, the things that come out of our mouth, that they would be edifying, building up, and they minister grace to the hearers. This unselfish love and giving of ourselves will also affect our brothers' meetings. And I think we're still learning about brothers' meetings and how all that works. At least I am. I don't think we've attained yet to what it could be. But I think, I'm thinking about this in relation to this whole concept of unselfish love and giving of ourselves and the putting the good of my brothers and sisters ahead of my own. This will, not, this will not mean that we are there trying to carve out something for myself, you know, in whatever it is. But rather it's for the good of my brothers and sisters. It's not a personal agenda, but always for the good. Holy Spirit directed for the good of all. And if you, um, which will mean giving up my own ideas for the ideas of my brethren at times. That's going to be a part of this. This unselfish love will affect how I feel towards the conscience of my brothers and sisters. And this is a New Testament principle. And we can turn to um, 1 Corinthians 8 where Paul is referring to the conscience, the weak conscience of the brother in relation to the eating of meats offered to idols. That'd be an interesting sermon in itself, message in itself. 
But Paul is saying there that he did not have any conscience about eating meat that had been offered in sacrifice to an idol. They brought them back, maybe the next day or whatever, and then they would sell it in the market. You could buy this because they would rotate this meat or whatever it was through their idol worship and then they'd sell it. And he said, if you go to the market and buy some meat, one weak brother would say, well, I don't know, I can't eat this because I think it was offered to an idol there yesterday in the, in the, in the heathen temple. And he felt that it would defile him. Paul said, to him, it made no difference. I mean, it's just, it's just meat. I mean, the, the idol didn't do anything. But those who came from that background struggled with that. And you know what Paul said? I will not eat meat. As long as the world stands, if it makes my brother to offend. Now I know that passage can be used wrongly to say, well, it's the weak brother that is always, you know, has the weak conscience. Sometimes it's the other way around too. So that I mean, it's an interesting study of that scripture. But the point is that Paul is saying, I will put the good of my brother. I will put the good of his conscience. I will put his spiritual need ahead of my own. And I'll just, will not eat meat for the rest of my life if that's what is needed to be a spiritual benefit to my brother. To me, that's powerful. And it explains this concept in relation to, to liberty. And we talked about this whole thing of liberty before, and I said it would come up again. But this unselfish love, I'll repeat, will affect how I feel towards the conscience of my brothers and sisters. Do we make decisions on our personal, in our personal lives? Just think about this now. Just think about how you think in making decisions, just personal decisions, where you go, what you do, what you buy, what you wear, how you appear, whatever it is. All those little decisions. When I make decisions in my in personal life, is it on the basis of what I think is right for me? Is that always how we think? Or are most of my decisions based on the conscience of my brothers and sisters? You say, wow, that's really restrictive, isn't it? Think about it. You mean other people? Other people's conscience decide what I do? Yes, to a point that is exactly what the scripture is saying. Paul said, I'll change my diet if it helps a brother. So, there are a lot of things, a lot of decisions we make that are immoral. Immoral means neither right nor wrong, necessarily. I don't care if you want to have beef for lunch today or pork or whatever, chicken, you can... Those decisions are immoral. I don't... It doesn't matter. There's not a right or wrong in it, per se. But when it comes to affecting or somehow... Relating to my brothers and sisters, we ought to be thinking about it. And that is what I think what is important here. Think of it this way. We believe in having some church standards and guidelines, but how do you view that? How do I view it? Do we are we serving Christ in the church by love? Or by legalism. Legalism is not just having a minimum standard that we want to follow. That should just stay a minimum standard. And you've heard me say before that we, we don't want to be in a, get in a position where we need to write down every single thing you know, that we can and cannot do. That, was, that is really legalism. And that would be wrong. But the only way it's going to work without setting up rules and guidelines is if we serve out of love our brothers and sisters taking their conscience into account for the decisions I make. And that will build unity, that will build brotherhood, and that will build a strength that the devil cannot drive wedges in. 
And so that's the, the simple challenge that is, you know, that there, when, when legalism creeps into our minds, it's often different than what we think it is, naturally. But when legalism creeps into our minds, we will view standards and guidelines from the wrong perspective. It will be from the standard that, well, if it doesn't say I can't do it, then that means I can. Legalism. And or the standpoint that if no one says anything to me about something I've done, and if no one says anything, then I guess it's okay. Legalism. We don't want to go there. We, we want to serve Christ in our personal lives, in, in, in the family, in church family, out of love. Not out of pure standards and guidelines and legalism. And so when I serve out of love, it means I'm going to respect because I love my brethren and I, I love the, the sisters in, in our brotherhood and I respect their conscience because I love them. And if I know that some of them do not appreciate what I do, I will stop doing it. That's what it means. That's how we build each other up. The independent spirit says, well, they may not think it's right for them, but I don't have a problem with it, so I'm going to do it anyway. That's not New Testament. That's not what Paul said. Paul said, no, it's a legitimate thing. Another place he said, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. In other words, there's a lot of things I could do that I do not feel would be wrong for me to do. But it's not expedient for me to do. It's not good for me to do. And of course, one of those is the conscience of my brothers and sisters. I don't want to stand before Judgment Day and have, you know, offended a little one because I allowed myself to do some things that caused them to start a path that led wrong. This is where I believe the devil is, is working all the time and driving wedges in so many congregations because of this independence. I think it's an area that I think we can work on. I know I'm going to be working on it because the Lord has laid heavily upon me and I, I, I just feel that we can work at this together and help each other. One of the things that happens, and you see it, you hear it, is someone will say, well, I'm never going to have a church tell me what to do. That's the independent spirit. That's where we're looking for the right methods, and we ought to be looking at ourselves to be the right people, the right men, the right women. And we will never find a scriptural church that will accommodate everyone's independence. I'm sorry, but you will not find it. You will not find a scriptural church that will accommodate everybody's independence. It's, it's an oxymoron. It's, it's an impossibility. How much I communicate with my church family. I need to close here. I think this is a, a practical one. One I, I think that I've been thinking about for a while already. And I've bounced off a few brothers other places, ministerial brothers, because it kind of came as a new idea, a little bit, I guess. How much I communicate with my church family? What does it take to make family work? Well, it will mean opening our lives to each other, to a point. If we're going to get rid of the independent spirit that will drive wedges between us and finally bring about the destruction of a congregation, if we're going to be working on that together, it means that we're going to have to be open with each other. You know, you can't have your little circle, you know, of ideas and say, you know, just leave me alone. That's how modern Christianity is. You know, I'll let you alone, I'll let you be, you live, and I'll, you let me live. And we just do our own thing, and we come together and worship Sunday morning and go home. End of it. But that's not, I, I just don't think that's in this scripture. So it will mean opening our lives to each other. And it's, uh, in other words, in a natural family setting, we talked about empty chairs at the table supper time, and nobody knows where the, where the children are. We say, well, we've got to find them. We've got to know what's going on. Maybe a little bit of that is true in church life. This is what I've been thinking about. You know, letting our church family know 
when we are away? What am I missing? I know as, I think it's important for leaders to do that because we are your servants, servants of a congregation as leaders. We just try to let, let you know. And we should. Because you have a right to know where, we're, where we are and what we're doing. But it, maybe that's true, and we could do a lot more on that. I'm not saying we do that right. But, but it, it, maybe that's something that we all could work on. You know, just for the closest of brother to say, well, I need to go here. I'm going to be gone this Sunday. You know, and, you know, I wish I could be there with you. You know, but isn't that something that just a little thing that we could do to, to help in communication and that family spirit? That we don't have to wonder what happened to somebody? I mean, the chair is empty. And really, modern technology has made that very simple. In the old days, I can see why they didn't do that. You have to ride the horse over the neighbors or tell them or send a telegraph or um, letter by Pony Express. If we're going to use modern technology, we ought to use it to build the church. And, you know what I mean? In brotherhood and community. So maybe that's, you know, we can, it's pretty easy to send a text and say, you know, is that a way to help me connect it? That's my question. What about business decisions? You know, I know some congregations do this more than others. And, and I'm just raising it as a question. Maybe it's a discussion issue. You know, I'm thinking of doing this or that or the other thing. And, and what about this? What, what do you, what do you, how do you brother feel? But, and remember that we are not all alike. This is another part of this. We are not all alike. Some of us are more private kind of people. And I understand that. I'm an introvert. I'm not an extrovert. So it's easy for me to like my personal space. We're not going to change our personalities. And I think, the, you know, the extroverts need to be sensitive to the feelings of the introverts and vice versa. We have to, you know, God finally made us different. And that's by design. It's not by mistake. It's by design. And so obviously God had a plan for this. But again, we need to, to uh, work together. If this is going to work, we will also... We also will love enough to, to protect confidentialities. I said some of us are a little more, you know, like our private space. We don't necessarily spill everything about, you know, everything that we're feeling or doing. Which is okay to a point, but, you know, if the introverts are going to feel free to share more, we have to always understand that there has to be confidentiality. You know, that what I share and what you share doesn't go all over the country. This is family. It stays right here in the family. And um, <clears throat> so that, that is something to think about. I think we need to respect the beauty in the mosaic of unique personalities God has given us. Remember we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Earthen vessels, that's us. You know, our personalities, our, you know, who we are. We have the, the glory of Christ. We have that treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency may be of, the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. So whatever God does in us for that is good, that is helpful, that is edifying, it's because God is working in spite of us, in spite of these earthen vessels, and that the glory of Christ can shine forth. And that's what we're talking about in the differences. And so we respect the differences, we appreciate the differences, and we don't let those differences uh, irritate us. And lastly... I think about this verse, 2 Corinthians 16, 15, which is, Paul talks about the house of Stephanus. And the scripture always stands out to me. I beseech you, brethren, you know the house of Stephanus, but it is the first fruits of Achaia. In other words, they were the first to come to Christ in Achaia. And that they have addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. That's a strong word. We know something of addiction in today's world. They have addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. A few thoughts in closing. There is no place in all this world where a person should find more love than within the church. Is that too idealistic? Is that too strong? Isn't that really what Christ wants to work into us and through us? But there's no place in the world 
that you will find more love, more true love than in the church. Remember, it's not just blood ties, and it's not even blood ties many times, that bind the family of God together. This is not something that we can generate from a human strength. It will never happen. It'll fly apart. This is divine. This is a miracle, the miracle of brotherhood. And it, it, so it's not the strength of blood ties at all that bind the family of God together. It's the Holy Spirit of God within each of us. And that's what binds us together. That's what builds us together. That's what pulls us together. So the more you and I submit to the power of the Holy Spirit within, the more we're going to be drawn together in brotherhood. And the less the devil will be able to drive wedges and cause divisions among us. This kind of divine love in a, in a spiritual church family, Jesus said, will be proof to a watching world that we are true disciples of Jesus. I'd just like to make a few comments, just, just briefly, quick. You know, the, the effort, or I should say it this way, this effort and surrender is more powerful than any other evangelistic program or effort we may have. We talk about evangelism, we talk about mission, we talk about all these things, and we do them. And it's right to do them. And we can say we should do more. The challenge, I think, from the scripture is, though, we need to start right here in what we've talked about this morning in the love and building of the church family. Jesus said, By this shall all men know you, that you are my disciples, if you have love one to another. We can be running all over the country, you know, doing mission work, but if we're not getting along in our church, it's going to be a disaster. You have no place to bring people to say, here you can find the love of Christ. You know, here is a church family that, that shows the love of Christ and lives it out with each other. We, we need that. So I'm not saying we should not do other mission efforts. I'm not talking, I'm not saying that. We should. But let's be sure that we're, we're starting right here with our effort. Um, with our own hearts. You know, in our own relationship with the church community and church family. And that's going to be the most powerful witness. What was it that brought the thousands of converts to the new church in Acts 2? What was it? They saw how they related to each other and how they loved each other and took care of each other. And people were almost, you know, breaking down the doors to get in. I'm not saying that's going to necessarily happen. But one of the challenges that I felt in this, in this message this morning was if we are missing something here that God wants us to grow in and help us with, will that change our evangelistic response in the community, in the world around us? That's a question that is still up to me, unanswered. But we do know what the scripture tells us and what we can do. When this was present in the early church, like I talked about in Acts, and in the Reformation, people came from all over and wanted to join that kind of a church family. You had people finding Christ, say like in the Reformation, that knew that there was going to be a death sentence upon them when they were baptized and joined the Anabaptist group, but they did it anyway. It's because they saw the expressions of the love of Christ within community, within the church. It's what's happening in Bangladesh. So it's happening in a lot of other parts of the world. Believers are coming together. The Holy Spirit is bringing them together. For some of them, it's a high price to pay. For some of them, they could die tomorrow. But they do it anyway. Because that's where they see the love of, of Christ exemplified. May God help us. Let's personally take this challenge.
and I hope that this can also spark continued discussions among us of what we can do and what is lacking yet within our hearts. God has been good to us. God has blessed us. But I would just like to hold out that I know God has more for us. So let's reach for, let's reach forward for that mark. Let's kneel to pray. Father, we thank you for your blessings and your truth and your word. Father, we know that we are so feeble. We are so um, short-sighted. And Father, we are affected so much by the things around us and, and concepts and the influences. And so, Father, we just pray that we, this morning, that you will continue to open our hearts to your word and help us to understand what is needed. Help us to to be men and women of faith, men and, men and women of honesty, honesty with ourselves, our own hearts, and honest with you. And so, Father, we just pray and continue blessing upon each of us, and may your Holy Spirit go with us, and may we find the strength and the help and the guidance you want us to have so that we can continue to build family in our congregation here. We ask in the name of Christ. Amen.